Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Gamower, a senior lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Kier Giles. Kier is a senior consulting fellow at the Chatham House Russia and Eurasia Program, as well as director of the Conflict Studies Research Centre, which is a research and analysis collective of experts in Eurasian security. Kier focuses in his work on Russian military capability, the security of Russia's neighbours, and Eurasian security issues more broadly. Kier's most recent book, Russia's War on Everybody and What It Means for You, maps the depth and breadth of aggressive actions by Russia's ruling regime by following the stories of individuals whose lives have been personally impacted by the actions of the Russian state. This is both an important and a timely book that covers the range of current activities of Russia's ruling regime, discussing issue areas that are only going to become more important in coming decades. So I look forward to discussing some of the themes in the book today, as well as considering how they might apply in light of Russia's current war in Ukraine. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Kira. Hello, Jessica. Thank you for having me. So first of all, since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, we've seen a renewed interest in the way in which Russia might be acting aggressively towards its neighbours and also towards what we could call, quote-unquote, the West. But you have been researching these issues for far longer than 2022. Your recent book that I mentioned Russia's War on Everybody and What It Means for You, actually written prior to Russia's full-scale invasion. And then you had to sort of modify that draft or make some additions after that very dramatic act, which occurred on the 24th of February. So I'm interested, what motivated you to write this book? And then I'm also interested in how it differs from a book that you had previously written in 2019 called Moscow Rules, What Drives Russia to Confront the West? Well, yes, it's interesting you call it renewed interest in what Russia does. And that really is the key to the problem here, because what Russia does is a constant. It may come and go in the public consciousness around the world, but that's really just a function of whether people are really paying attention to what Russia is doing. And similarly, you might think that uh, that Russia has been doing more or less of its aggressive actions against its neighbors and the rest of the world. Uh, But that is really not a function of what Russia wants to achieve. It's more a function of how strong Russia feels it is any given moment. And there too, there's more of it happening because Russia thinks it has the strength and the reach and it thinks it can get away with it at the moment. In terms of the two books, uh, Moscow Rules, What Drives Russia to Confront the West and now Russia's War on Everybody, they do go together in a way because Moscow Rules was about why Russia does this and Russia's War on Everybody is about how it does it. So in the earlier book, it was looking back through Russian history, trying to find out why it is that always Russia feels that it needs to attack the West. At the same time, it's looking to the West as sometimes a a source of inspiration for where Russia itself wants to be, uh, and sometimes the antithesis of that, everything that Russia wants to resist. And then Russia's war on everybody, as you mentioned, it's about the specific impact of that drive by Russia to confront Western countries and Western liberal democracies and what it means for ordinary people, not just in Russia's neighborhood, but around the world. 
Now, one of the the more depressing things about the earlier book, Moscow Rules, was uh, it ended up with a prediction that unless Russia's track, unless Russia's trajectory was understood, where Russia was going, what it thought it wanted to achieve, how it thought it wanted to get there, was understood more broadly in the West and and was responded to appropriately, then we'd soon be in a, a bigger and deeper and worse crisis that we'd seen before. And sure enough, three years later, with the invasion of Ukraine, here we are. Uh, but yes, it's absolutely the case that the book, uh, the second book, Russia's War on Everybody, was written well before the invasion of Ukraine because it's describing constant processes of which the, the invasion is just the most dramatic and recent example. It's about things that go on all the time with Russia trying to project power and sometimes trying to do harm to other countries and other societies simply because it can, as opposed to following any particular state objective. And yes, it's personal stories from around the world. It's uh, more than 40 individuals from 12 countries on, on four different continents, all telling their own stories of what it means to be on the receiving end of Russia lashing out and exerting its power and trying to do harm. And that's the reason why I felt the book had to be written when I started writing it back in 2021, because these were stories that were not being told. Because for every incident that makes it into the media and people get to hear about, there are so many more below the surface because this is an ongoing process where Russia is doing this all the time and people are affected all the time. And it was their stories that I wanted to tell. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating angle to take. And I'm interested in the way that you phrase the title, Russia's War on Everybody, because I guess there are other ways in which you could have phrased that Russia's War on, for example, the West or, you know, some other entity. So could you say a little bit more about why you called this book Russia's War on Everybody? Yes, quite. It's uh, a lot of people think that this is something that affects other people. It's something that is happening on a state level. So the only people that need to be concerned about it are the ministers, the diplomats, the generals, the people who deal with interstate relations. But through telling all these stories from individuals around the world, what I wanted to show was that actually, no, it has a direct human impact on people who may never have thought of Russia in the first place. So we've got stories in there from, from a range of individuals. Some of them set themselves up deliberately in opposition to Russia because they see what the Russian state does, whether to its own people or to, to others abroad, and they wanted to resist it. And so they put themselves in Russia's crosshairs deliberately. Other people found themselves there completely unsuspectingly. They were not expecting to be targeted by Russia for just doing their job, or possibly they had no interest in Russia whatsoever. And yet they've all felt the impact of these Russian destructive campaigns around the world. So those are the, the people that are actually aware of how Russia's actions affect them, whose stories are brought into the book. But the point I'm trying to make with some of the, the other descriptions of Russian campaigns is that even people who are unaware are also directly affected by what Russia does a long way away from, from Moscow itself. Now, one of the, the simplest examples and one of the ones that uh, is, is easiest to understand of what this impact is on ordinary people around the world is the cyber campaigns and in particular the ransomware attacks where criminal gangs or Russian state-backed gangs will lock somebody's computer in exchange for a ransom for unlocking it. 
Now, we see a lot of high-profile cases in the media, but it actually does affect everybody directly. On the day after the this book was published in the UK, it was announced that the Cabinet Office briefing room, the, the UK emergency meetings for discussing crises, were convened more regularly for ransomware incidents than for any other cause during the last year. And it does affect everybody because it bears a cost, because there's not only the, the ransom that you pay, but also the cost of putting right all of the computer systems that are affected. And this is not something that regularly comes to public attention, but I pulled in a couple of statistics from, um, from government incidents in the UK in the book, where it is costing hundreds of millions of pounds to actually put right the damage that is done by these Russian attacks. And where does that money come from? It's from everybody's pocket because this is tax money and tax dollars that are actually being funneled directly into Russia and being extracted from, from the value of our own economies and our own societies. So people at this point usually stop and think, well, surely this is just a, a criminal activity. This is not something which is being directed by the Russian state necessarily. But here's where another specific aspect of how Russia wages its campaigns come in. And it's that gray area between the state and commercial businesses and organized crime and the intelligence agencies all of which work very closely together in Russia for projecting these effects abroad. And again, cyber is one of the best examples of that, because if you think about the way in which a cyber attack is carried out, it's the same techniques that are being used for crime or for espionage. In either case, what you're trying to do is break into somebody else's computer to extract the key information, whether it's their banking details or something secret that is held there. And so there's a kind of natural nexus between crime groups and the intelligence services for working on that. And to some extent, it, it gets ridiculous because, again, looking at the ransomware gangs extracting all of this capital from the West, look at where their headquarters are. Some of them are in the same glitzy office building in downtown Moscow as the Ministry for Digital Communications of the Russian Federation. So put it all together and you have a way in which all of these different effects that are coming from Russia are more closely related to the state than most people would assume, even when it looks like straightforward criminal activity. And it does have an effect on everybody because of the knock-on effects of their targeting of Western liberal democracies and societies. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And I mean, obviously, there's a lot in the book and we're not going to cover everything on the podcast today, but can you talk a little bit more about some of the other means that you do discuss in the book, how Russia is waging this war on everybody. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many different ways in which it affects people. Some of them people are conscious of now and others they're not. Some of the things that are at the front of people's mind at the moment, for example, the energy blackmail, the way in which Russia has used its energy weapon to push up prices around the world with a knock-on effect on the cost of living. And the disinformation campaigns around the world, one of the things that people are most conscious about at the moment, because so many people have lost friends and family down the disinformation rabbit hole where they're sucked into these conspiracy theories. And some of the campaigns that Russia's waged have just made it clear that the aim is destruction. The aim is just to cause harm and to cause damage. And a classic example of that, of course, is sponsoring anti-vaccination campaigns around the world, even before we were facing a global pandemic, because it's in Russia's interest, as it see it, for other countries to be facing a public health crisis. And then, of course, with the arrival of coronavirus, stepping up those campaigns even more 
because Russia sees an opportunity to do even greater and deeper harm. And that's one of the, the ways in which this directly affects individuals who might have had no interest in Russia whatsoever, but still, still turn out to be a target for Moscow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And reinforcing those societal schisms as well in a way that's fracturing. So we've seen Russia has engaged in territorial incursions into Ukraine in 2014. And then again, of course, more dramatically with the full-scale invasion in February last year. This seemed to take most Western analysts and even Russia experts by surprise. But it's interesting that you note that in some ways, this just exposed these aggressive intentions of Russia's ruling regime in a way that was more difficult to ignore, but it didn't create those intentions. So why do you think it does seem to have been quite challenging for countries like the UK or countries in Europe or even the United States to see those intentions for what they were and respond accordingly? Yes, in a way, this ties back to the point that we opened with, the fact that Russia's intentions are constant and they're only more obvious to us when we're actually paying attention to them, but that's not all the time. And it's easy for Western governments to forget that Russia is not like them and does not like them and actually wants to harm them, because if you take your eye off the ball and don't pay attention to what Russia is saying and doing, then it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that uh, that Russia's uh, that Russia doesn't necessarily have hostile intentions. And that's tied up with a lot of different syndromes that affect how Western liberal democracies operate and how they operate between themselves. Because if you think of the politicians that were treating Russia as a normal country with which you could do your business in a normal way, as you would with, for example, Sweden, they're all people who have grown up and been educated and had their careers in that Western liberal democratic tradition where countries by and large try to work together and cooperate and look for means of seeking a common good as opposed to looking at every opportunity for ways in which they can harm each other. So it's extremely hard for some people to step out of that mindset and realize that actually there's a completely different approach and a completely different logic, which is driving the decisions in Russia. And that's one of the the key themes that ran through the earlier book we talked about before, Moscow Rules, uh, subtitled, What Drives Russia to Confront the West? That in order to understand that drive, you have to abandon all of your assumptions about how countries work internally and between themselves that are based on Western countries working, uh, working together. So put that together with other factors that affect democracies, like short political cycles, like short attention spans, loss of institutional memory, and so on. And we come back to the same problem again and again, that optimism leads Western leaders to think that actually Russia can't really be as bad as the long-term experts who watch it all the time are saying. And that's what leads to this constant search that we saw for decades before this latest invasion of Ukraine, looking for a reset with Russia, looking for a way of overcoming what they thought were misunderstandings that had led Russia to to lash out and carry out these hostile actions, and trying to find ways of forgiving Russia in the hope that that would then improve the relationship. But that, of course, only ignored all of those underlying factors that drive Russian politics and that drive this Russian ambition to cause harm elsewhere. Yep. And do you think that there's 
any way in which there could be a shift in relations between Russia and, let's say, Western countries whilst the current regime is still in power? Or is that something that you see as so deeply entrenched that whilst the current regime is in power in Russia, we're really only going to see more of the same? Well, unfortunately, it's not just the current regime, because the attitudes that the current regime are embodying are so much more deeply embedded in in Russian culture, Russian society, Russian politics as a whole. It is not a a Putin problem. Putin has not uh, created this idea that Russia is pursuing. Instead, he's he's just enacting it. But it also, uh, in order to have a different kind of relationship, it would take change not just in Russia, deep societal change, but also in the countries that Russia interacts with. That too is one of the things that I was hoping and calling for in the earlier book, Moscow Rules, a change in the relationship based on a recognition that what Russia wants from the relationship is something completely different to what most other countries assume. And if we had had that change, if we'd had that acceptance of what Russia wants and how it seeks to go about it, we might have been better positioned to deal with Russia's ambition for for attacking Ukraine in 2022, because it would not have come as such an inconceivable, unimaginable shock to the rest of the world when it did act. Mm -hmm. So what is it that Russia wants from your perspective? In a very straightforward sense, Russia wants it to be 1914 again. Russia wants to go back to its historical comfort zone where it could behave as a great power in a very 19th century sense, and the rest of the world would let it get away with it. It wants to reconstitute the empire, and President Putin's been quite explicit about the objectives of the campaign in Ukraine. He's talking about the decisions of a hundred years ago, which set up the republics within the Soviet Union based on ethnicities, based on nationalities, talking about those as a historical mistake, which needs to be corrected. So Russia wants to have its empire back. And unfortunately, that means the destruction of countries which are sovereign, independent nations that want to determine their own future, like Ukraine, but not just limited to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Based on that context and based on your own experience of studying Russia for a long time and having lived in Russia, what do you see as the likely trajectory of Russia's war in Ukraine this year? I think that trajectory has been been set for, for quite some time already. We're in, uh, as we speak, in one of those stable phases of the war. There have been plenty of surprises as, as Ukraine develops different capabilities and, and Russia slips further and further back into the past. But the the track now seems pretty clear. Russia has recognized both that it cannot win on the battlefield and that its attempts to be a modern 21st century military have failed and possibly even been misguided. And that leads to the, the campaigns that we see at the moment. An attempt to win the war strategically rather than operationally by trying to destroy the civilian critical infrastructure within Ukraine simply so that life there cannot carry on and Ukraine is forced to submit all of these air and missile attacks on the electricity system, um, which go along with earlier attacks on basic uh, life support mechanisms like food distribution, like water purification, etc., along exactly the lines that we saw Russia adopting in Syria triggering a humanitarian catastrophe so that the adversary has to submit just in order to survive, just replicated on a massive scale against across Ukraine. So the war, unfortunately, isn't going to be decided on the battlefield or decided by where the front line is, no matter what Ukraine's operational successes might be, no matter how far they push back 
Russian forces, that's not going to be the deciding factor. Instead, it is the matter of survival of the Ukrainian state and Ukrainian people that decide it. And that is precisely what Russia is targeting. But also the second lesson, the falling back on Russia's old mechanisms that it's always resorted to when it is trying to fight a war. If you look at the Bihashal mobilization campaign, calling up bodies to throw into the fight just to soak up Ukrainian bombs and bullets, because in this Russian conception, the number of your own casualties, the number of young people that die in pursuit of Russia's state aims, really are not important and are not significant. And so just having that mass, just throwing in vast quantities of untrained people to to stabilize the line and then to swamp the enemy by sheer numbers is something that we've seen so often from Russia before. And again, they're just reaching back into the history books and going back to default Russian state behaviors that we've seen so many times throughout history. And what do you see as the trajectory of what you've called Russia's war on everybody, looking a bit further than just this year, but as we go forward into the coming decade? I mentioned the problem of optimism, and that's still with us. We routinely hear that the Russian state is about to collapse, that it cannot sustain what it's doing, uh, that the uh, the pressures of the war and the economic difficulties as a result of sanctions and resistance from Russia's own civilian population as they see the casualty count mount will all mean that the days of the Putin leadership are numbered. Unfortunately, we've been hearing that for a decade plus, and there just really are not the signs that Russia can't sustain this, that the state isn't strong enough, resilient enough, sufficiently able to repress its population, that it can continue like this for a long time. Now, that means that all of these other campaigns that Russia is waging around the world, the ones that are not open military clashes, will continue for as long as Russia thinks that it's getting benefit from them. And clearly, it does think that. But unfortunately, even deeper than that, even if there is a change of leadership in Russia, even if there is peace in Ukraine of one form or another, that doesn't give a reason for all of these other campaigns to stop because it is so deeply ingrained in Russia's political psyche that security is a zero-sum game, that if you harm other countries, if you degrade their capability to, to operate as societies, by comparison, you make yourself stronger. Until that assumption goes away from the drivers for Russian politics, we are always going to be seeing these campaigns of reaching out and causing harm and causing damage around the world. And as I try to emphasize in the book, it's ordinary people that bear the brunt of the effects of that. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the best way to respond if this is an ongoing phenomenon? Because it's an ongoing phenomenon, the answer to that question has been fairly consistent over time. It's always been the same answer. And that is closing off the vulnerabilities. It's closing off the gaps that Russia exploits in the defenses of Western societies. And those gaps are pretty broad. It's uh, economic vulnerabilities. It's failure to legislate against foreign interference. It's failure to deal with the, the disinformation problem and reaching into our cognitive space using these information campaigns. And the examples that we come back to time and again when looking at successful ways of minimizing the damage that Russia can do tend to come from the frontline states, from those countries in Europe that have long recognized the Russia problem because they're exposed to it directly, cross-border effects as well as the, the longer range effects that Russia can deliver, and so have either preserved or are now busily rebuilding 
total defense and comprehensive defense strategies in order to protect not just the state, but also society and individuals. Because while some countries that are further away from Russia are only now recognizing the problem and trying to put in place whole of government defenses, getting all of the government agencies together to work against this multifaceted challenge, it's actually far deeper than that. And it needs to be a whole of society response because uh, this theme that we keep coming back to, it's not just adversary states that are being targeted. It's the whole political system. It's democratic processes. It's the economy and it's individuals. So all of those need to be protected against Russia. But the very first stage in doing that is actually recognizing the problem. And here too, there's a patchy response that differs around the world. Some countries very much aware of what the challenge is and leaderships able to admit it and talk about the, the Russian threat candidly. Other countries, which are still finding it far harder to actually accept that and have a public conversation about it in order to enable those defenses to be established. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Kier. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I recommend that listeners check out your books. I'll link to those in the show notes. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for listening and thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music.